Hello, Acquired Limited Partners, and welcome to another installment of our VC Fundamentals series. This thing has taken on a life of its own. I think, David, you and I have both gotten the feedback that uh, some people have even described the LP show as the Fundamentals series or the VC Fundamentals series. (laughs) So clearly, uh, we're having a lot of strong feedback on this. And know that it doesn't mean that we're not doing any of the other stuff, too. We're sort of formally classifying a lot of the other shows as sort of startup fundamentals, things like pricing and hiring and all that. But I'm excited to do another one of these because folks have really expressed that it's interesting to get sort of the the look behind the curtain. And frankly, I think as we'll talk about, even people who've been in the job for a while, it's nice to hear how other people think about it. Yeah, totally. I mean, we kind of debated even doing this in the beginning because we were like, well, there are lots of blog posts out there about how to be a VC and whatnot. But it's like, you know, it's not quite the same as I think what we're talking about here, which is like, okay, how does this stuff really happen? Like, what are people really thinking behind the scenes? Not some polished blog post, but like, (laughs) what are the nuts and bolts? And, you know, it's funny, I was hanging out with a good friend uh, this morning, who's a GP at a a super big, well-established firm. He said that, you know, they're thinking about changing up something about their structure, thinking about some stuff internally. Pouring it all into crypto? bring it all to crypto yeah (laughs) no (laughs) like a run-of-the-mill type of thing but he's like we've just never done this before we don't know how to do it so we reached out as a firm to another couple firms that have that you know have this structure and do it to like start to understand from them and and i was like yeah this is what we're doing here on the lp show because even if you've been in the industry for a while so much of this knowledge is siloed and locked away in organizations and uh, we're hopefully gonna unlock it yep absolutely this one in particular is on company building. And I think this is sort of the the exciting one. Speaking from the investor side, there are loads and loads of people who talk about picking sort of these the how you make investment decisions as if you know it's sort of like a stock picking exercise to invest in early stage startups and as we know it's very different in a lot of ways. But this is sort of the fun part as the investor because early stage venture investing, at least from the sort of lead investor side, is an active investor game. Um, you have tons of responsibilities on the governance side. You have tons of opportunities to create value for the company. It is not always the case that the investors do create value. <laughs> yeah. But the, oh, the we'll way get that, into that... Yeah, the way that these investments are structured is investors can be very involved in the company, unlike, say, a public company where you're a sort of passive investor that has nothing to do with actively creating value inside the entity. And so... This being an asset class that has active involvement by capital in company building means there's lots of different ways that people could go about helping that company create value. And so uh, I think what we're going to do here today is break down what those things are, debate the merits of them, um, decide when do we think those things are and are not helpful, and offer some examples of things we've seen work in the past. David, is that about cover it? That sounds great to me. I mean... um... You know, it's funny you said, uh, this is the fun part. I totally agree. This is the fun part. But you know, there are plenty of investors out there that think this is not the fun part. There's lots of ways to do this. So quick definition by company building, Ben, you basically already described it, but we're, we're talking about everything that happens after you make the investment. So we've already covered sourcing. We've already covered initial investment decisions. This is okay. You, you wrote the check, the deal closed. Now what? (laughs) You went Uh, through the one-way door and made that decision. Now you live with that decision and try and make the most of it for a long time. Yeah. So, okay. So kind of to start it off, we thought we would talk about what are you really trying to 
do here with company building. And the first one, you know, Ben, you've already mentioned is obvious. You're in theory trying to increase the value of add value to your investments. Uh, VCs adding value, you know, this is like a trope. This is what they What can I do to be helpful? Trying to be helpful. Less obviously though, although still pretty obvious, the second kind of purpose for doing this is to increase your likelihood of sourcing, finding, winning your next investments. And that, that can really come in one of two ways through your company building work. Directly, it can come from people that you meet within your portfolio companies, people farther down in the org, whether you work with them directly or you get exposed to their work through your involvement with the company. Great. You know, if they're really talented, they might go start a company. And so that's another really important reason to take this seriously and think about doing company building. There's also indirect too, just your reputation. Like if you develop a reputation as somebody who's really good at this, who entrepreneurs love working with, feel like you're adding a lot to their company and what they're building, well, then word's going to get around and that's going to make it easier for you to, you know, source and find your next deals. So obviously increasing value, but also I think important to keep in mind, there is this other aspect of it too. Yeah. So the single turn game that you're optimizing is you made this investment and so you want to make it as valuable as possible. And the iterated game that you're playing is your own, you know, 50 year reputation here and trying to increase the value of future investments. Yeah. And I guess the last thing we should say on this too, you know, the what are you trying to do? Why are you doing this? There's a class of VCs and investors, certainly by no means all, and I don't even think a majority, but I definitely fall in this class. I think you do too, too, Ben, of like, we just like doing this. You know, this is the fun stuff. You know, I, I would do this even if, you know, it was, I wasn't an investor in the company. I do sometimes. Yeah. I think David, that's mostly what you're doing with your time now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For this class of investors, whether it's why they got into the game or how they got into the game, David, you probably represent more of the why of the, the reason that you wanted to stop being an investment banker and get into VC is to be able to work on companies sort of in the nitty gritty level. Meanwhile, for me, sort of like, accidentally became an investor because this is the sort of stuff that I was doing more in the writing software and shipping and being a PM and starting companies and, you know, eventually through the startup studio, ending up deploying capital as well through PSL Ventures. I think you and I represent sort of the why and the how of uh, really enjoying this part of being a VC. I think Bill Gurley used to talk about in interviews and stuff. He pay, well, <laughs> he probably still does now because he's not being paid for it. But uh, he used to say, yeah, I would do this job even if I didn't get paid for it. And now he's he's not getting paid for it and he's still doing the job. So, you know, I relate doing the same thing. Okay. So just like we did with sourcing, we went through all the you know activities you do and things you can do around company building. We're going to put them into some different buckets first. Then we'll talk about what the actual activities are, how they work, how you do them, how they impact the companies, etc. First, we're going to do these categories. And one thing before sort of diving into the categories here, just a, a point that I want to make is that there's so many caveats here to avoid being a trope. And so um, we're going to make all of them. <laughs> partly as a defense mechanism, but also just to like say how we feel about these things. So an investor is never going to be as deep in what the company actually does as the entrepreneur. It's not even like throwing shade at an investor or to say that. It's it's really just like the fact of an entrepreneur is starting a company because it's their life's work and their obsession. And an investor is diversified across a broad set of them. So sort of by 
natural forces, the VC will always have a wider purview across companies and pattern match across different situations that are common between different companies at the sort of stage that they operate. That's from the purview perspective. They'll also have a set of deep horizontal relationships that they can replicate from previous companies. So this could be things like PR or other platform portfolio services, or things like customer relationships with Fortune 500 buyers in the case of enterprise software. So the important thing here that's worth sort of identifying is to figure out what activities are best for a company to do in-house by those who are actually deepest on the subject matter based on their unique depth versus what is high leverage to get out of an investor who has that thin slice perspective across companies and industries. Oh, yeah. And we're going to get into this. Like, are you getting it from your investor person? Are you getting it from a, a portfolio services team at the firm? We're going to get into it. Okay. So the first bucket is when you are getting value as a company or you as an investor are giving value to <laughs> to the company directly. So like it's you, one person or maybe the uh, investment team at the firm that's working on this portfolio company. Some firms are structured like that, but more often one person. And this is, you know, stuff like you are joining the board of the company or depending on stage, you know, or in your tech size, maybe you're being a board observer or, you know, if you're not on the board at all, you're the investment lead. We'll talk more about board work, board memberships, board meetings later. But that's going to be a lot of the context of your direct interactions with the company. Also other, you know, sort of more informal relationship that you have with the CEO, with founders, with other people deeper down in, in the organization. And I would say the kind of like the, in some ways, purest, but uh, best, most easily graspable example for most people of a firm that primarily operates in this bucket is Benchmark. So like they don't have any portfolio services. It's just them. It's just the GPs. Like they talk about this all the time. The craft of investing is what they do. Each GP is making an investment. He or she is serving on the board. It's their relationship with the founders that is the primary activity of what they do. Yep. And we've talked about this. I kind of like bringing in the chronology here. We've talked about this in other parts of the VC Fundamental series, but this is sort of the historical way that it always was. If you think about the origin of venture capital, it's a pool of three to four or three to six frankly, men at that point in time, but people coming together, you know, this is the 60s to basically invest their own money and some of other people's money, but there's zero, like that's what you get is you get capital and the relationship with that one person. And the VC wasn't a professionalized asset class. Uh, firms didn't have career progressions and people across all these different sort of skill sets that we have now. But it's interesting to sort of understand origins are that's all you sort of used to get. And now yeah, that's um, classic venture capital. Yes, there's there's a much more specialization of labor now. Yeah. So now to jump to the complete opposite end of the spectrum, I would categorize this bucket as active slash portfolio services. This is, you know, the canonical example here of is Andreessen Horowitz. And when they came on the scene in 2009, they were, you know, firms had done a little bit of this before, but they were the first that were like, nope, what we are, we are a big firm, lots of people here, some of which are on the investing team, some of which are GPs, but most of the people here are not on the investing team. They are on the talent and recruiting team. They are on biz dev teams. They're on market development, which is helping find you know customers and biz dev partners. They're doing PR. Sometimes they're even doing data science or design or engineering for our portfolio companies. Uh, and this was like a radical shift at the time. 
I called it specialization of labor, but that's really what it is. Is it's like this, I sort of said it jokingly in the past, but if you think about sort of that economic theory of if you're deploying capital into people, and I'm when I'm saying deploying capital now, I mean paying with management fees people at the firm who are specialists in what they do, then the sum of all of that can be greater than if you just had sort of generalists doing all of that and being pretty good at all of it instead of excellent at just one thing. And so before funds were smaller. And so there wasn't enough management fee to hire 150 people or whatever Andreessen is. But when you have enough sort of fees to go around and you actually can hire the best PR person or, you know, the the best executive recruiter, the sort of economic theory behind that is that you can get much more leverage on those sort of fee dollars uh, to, to grow the value of your investments. It's a fool's errand and unrealistic to think that somebody who's a an investing general partner at a firm is also going to be world class <laughs> at you know PR or recruiting or whatever. Like they're going to have their areas they spike in and their areas they don't. And so the the thesis behind building a firm like this is like, oh, we can just bring in the world class people, have them in house, offer those directly as uh, services to our portfolio companies versus the companies hiring third party agencies to do this stuff. Great, makes sense. People have all sorts of opinion about the opinions <laughs> about the efficacy of these services, which we probably won't, we won't get into as much now. But I think a point I want to make that Ben, you probably I assume would agree, there is a vast difference in how this works and is structured in a studio model like PSL versus a pure venture firm model. The reason I think to just articulate my view of that is at how a venture capital platform, like the one we, we're going to probably keep referring to Andreessen Horowitz because they're the most exaggerated uh, example on the spectrum of having but pretty a massive much every platform. firm except Benchmark these days has some degree <laughs> some of this that they've adopted. Exactly. And the difference between that and a studio is really that like the studio resources are really around sort of pre-founding, pre-launch, getting the company off the ground, whereas the sort of uh, portfolio services or platform are really about once the company is already formed and capital has gone in, parachuting these people in to do work alongside the company as it scales. And sometimes that can be incredibly high leverage. Like uh, I think a good example is I've heard great things about OpenView. They're sort of uh, Series B focused, B2B SaaS. Like they have a whole go-to-market team. And I think you actually pay for it. Someone from OpenView can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but they're like much like emergence because they're so focused on B2B SaaS companies, go-to-market growth, sales. It's super high leverage to have these people who are sort of specialists parachute in and work with your company. But in a lot of cases, like it's it's harder to squint and see how somebody at the firm who isn't a part of the company is actually going to help as much. And so, well, just especially to, I think once once you get into like engineering or design or data cell, like then that's <laughs> you really got to squint in those cases. But. Totally depends how it's structured. Yeah, I think on those there exist examples where like. There's a firm I know that will basically lend an engineer for an entire year and like they will be embedded in the company. And the closer they look to like actually joining the company and being an employee in those types of situations, usually the better they work out in my experience. But just to finish the thought on juxtaposing against a studio and the studio, no one's ever really parachuting in because there was kind of nothing there before the studio folks started working on it with the founder. And so 
that tension isn't really there. Obviously, I'm like excited about the studio model because I helped start PSL. Started like, a studio. Yeah. yeah the The whole notion of like, oh, so and so expert from that venture firm coming in and telling us what to do or making suggestions and then leaving. Like, you don't have that sort of tension friction that you would in sort of a later stage platform team. Right. I mean, you're the first ones building it. So what's interesting here is for the past 10 years or so in the the Andreessen era of venture capital, <laughs> that's kind of been the model of this, like, you know, what, what I'm calling active or, you know, portfolio services approach. It's interesting. There's another spin on this approach that is in some ways super old school, but is now coming back around in a modern focus. And that's the, or in a modern context, and that's the, I'll call it the network approach. In the old days, this is what Kleiner Perkins was all about. Like they had this, you know, in the, the glory days of, of Kleiner Perkins. The Karetsu. The Karetsu, yeah. You know, with Kleiner and Perkins and then and then in the John Doerr glory days, you know, this was if Kleiner invested in your company, they were super actively encouraging all of their companies to work together, give each other deals, you know, sell services to each other, do partnerships together, acquire each other, all of these things. You know, Karetsu is obviously the Japanese conglomerate approach. Kleiner itself wasn't providing any headcount people services here. They were saying, no, like you guys, like we invest, we have a portfolio of literally the best startups out there. You guys should be helping each other. Interestingly, I feel like this has kind of come back into vogue in a weird way. It's more like community mindset advice now, but from everything I've heard, I think First Round does a really good job of this. Of you know, they have so many companies. Well, First Round, of course, has done great, but but the canonical example here is YC. <laughs> like you know, the the network of being within YC, they've I think five thousand companies. No, it can't be five. Is it five? They have several thousand companies that have gone through YC. A hundred a bat, a hundred ish a batch, one twenty or something like that, two a year, two fifty a year at this. Well, they point. had those those supersized the steroid years where they had like two hundred plus in each batch. They've dialed it down a bit. Anyway, you know they have all sorts of communities, whether it's discussion forums, Q and A. Um, actually, Michael Siebel was just on on Patrick's show on Invest Like the Best, uh, and he talked a lot about this. And it's really interesting. Like it kind of is. It's this modern community focused spin obviously at a much bigger scale for both first round and yc obviously than kleiner but bringing this uh, idea back you could maybe even say the acquired community is sort of an unbundled version of this but uh, <laughs> i was about to bring it to bundling yeah so you know if you think about early venture capital days again in some ways, it was just capital that you got. Of course, you got the relationship with the board member, but that's likely more just for governance than it was actually adding significant value to the company, with the exception of sort of the Arthur Rock and, and Don Valentine's of the world, of which there weren't many then. And so, you know, that was just capital. But now, because there's competition, so much competition to deploy this capital, it comes bundled with all this other value-add services. Again, we say value-added services almost in a cheeky way because I think it's it's easy to make fun of what value gets really added and all that. But but it's true. Like there 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 is It's totally value. true. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2 Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. 
Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how QuarterPro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. QuarterPro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. QuarterPro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R no e q u a r t r dot com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the quarter team our thanks to quarter the next bucket i think this is probably the biggest value driver i don't know you could debate but it's certainly really big and real i call this passive to differentiate from active and direct but this is the brand halo effect this is if a top firm leads you around if benchmark does your a you know if sequoia does your seed or your growth round or whatever like or you know if softbank does your growth round okay not softbank <laughs> <laughs> but you know whatever your sector is and stage if the top one two maybe three firm leads you around you're going to be a hot company and the brand of that investor in that context and that stage is going to transfer into the portfolio company now let's talk about where that's actually value add because i think this is now that we're getting into a rhythm here david yes. i think this is actually a pretty good format for like uh one of us to keep checking the other person on okay how, but how does that actually add value like i understand Perfect. that's a service that's listed on the firm's website how does it add value so <laughs> i don't know do any firms actually list that like we're a top firm and thus if we invest in you like you will be awesome somebody should just in, do that. in much less direct words yes but <laughs> There's obviously the impact on your next fundraise. Like once you raise from one of these firms, it becomes, it's never easy to fundraise, likely because you raised from that firm at a high valuation. And now you have incredibly high expectations on your company, especially for your next round. But there's sort of a almost momentum trading effect where you become worth more because you were able to raise from that firm. I want to, for a moment, just like, let's tuck that away and not call that value creation. It's like, paper value creation. So where does oh, it where okay. does that really manifest? And I, I think the biggest example, and I know David, you want to get a word in, but I want to just like make right, this point. Right, you keep going. You keep going. I'm, I'm taking notes here. 
for the right types of companies, I think that that is really value creative in customer legitimacy. So if you're a B2B SaaS company selling to the enterprise and you get a top firm to invest in you that the CIO of that company has heard of and that company has been referenced in the Wall Street Journal and, you know, it's a little old school to, to say that, but like... We were talking about the Kleiner Kiretsu days, so... Right, know. right. Then you could see how that could legitimately improve the like likelihood that you're going to be able to sell to that buyer. Now, the next level of that would be like if your board member or one of the people on the platform team actually makes an introduction and has a relationship with that customer, that's even better. Specifically scoping to brand Halo, David, I think the biggest value that I would at least uh, put here on the record is that it's the customer legitimacy and hiring legitimacy. I think those are the two. So I had three areas where I think this is real. Customer legitimacy, biz dev, again, depending on your industry. Hiring for sure too. I mean, there are lots like if you're, you know, we we see it too. Like, you know, if if you get funded by Sequoia, you get funded by Medgemark, it's all of a sudden overnight, it's going to become easier, easier at every stage of your hiring funnel to attract candidates, uh, that they're going to be more interested in you and then ultimately closing them. So I would say those two are very real, but I think by far the biggest value of the brand halo effect is in raising your next round uh, particularly if it's early stage i think this declines as you go farther like if sequoia leads your d i don't know that it's going to make it all that much easier to raise your e unless you also raise it from sequoia <laughs> but if if sequoia leads your seed you are like for sure going to get a ton of looks you're going to get a ton of inbound you're going to get a ton of preemptive interest in you're even before anybody really knows what you're doing. Now you can we can argue whether that's good, bad, right, wrong, but that's just the reality. Yeah. Super fair. Super um, fair. So I think that's the that's the biggest area where where Halo Effect helps. Similarly, there are two kind of valences to the Halo Effect. There's the firm Halo Effect, like we were just talking about. You know, Sequoia, Benchmark, Emergence and SaaS, you know, et cetera. This is, I think, the big reason why Hamilton talked about on our show, and, and there's good research on this, that there's persistence in the top performing venture capital firms. Like the brand of those firms is worth a lot. Interestingly, there's another valence too, and that's the individual uh, brand and, and platform. So like the canonical example here is is Fred Wilson at Union Square. Union Square is a great firm, great brand, but especially in the early days, like Fred was the OG out there blogging and creating AVC. And, you know, that really did so much, you know, for him, obviously in USV, but also for his portfolio companies, like that was a platform. And so now all of a sudden um, he could really help those companies it improved, you know, his ability to get into deals. Uh, it was it was great. And right, the quality of his relationships improves, and therefore, whatever relationships he's able to bring to bear to the companies that he works with are improved because he, you know, so many more people know him from reaching out because of his blog or you know, he uh, it, huge reach. Yep, uh, Brad Feld too. You know, similarly, uh, it wasn't yep. as uh, he doesn't blog every day like Fred, but uh, <laughs> um, but also you know was part of this early movement. And today, I mean, this is happening again, like Turner Novak on Twitter. Great, super smart. He's building a great platform on Twitter. You know, Patrick, obviously, at Invest Like the Best in his new venture fund, Positive Sum. There's a lot of interesting new stuff happening here. So, David, I want to, because you referenced persistence of returns in venture as an asset class, and, and you just brought up Patrick's show. So, Patrick just had uh, Michael Mobison on, who is like, I think Michael's been like three of my carve outs on the main show. He was a, was he the head of, 
he, uh, lead analyst or something at Credit Suisse First yeah, Boston, Suisse. Yep. and now yep. he's at Morgan Stanley, Columbia professor. Yeah, uh, I think I think he teaches. Does he teach Ben Graham's old course now? Oh, Columbia? I don't know. I think he might. Interesting. He just puts out these prolific papers and books and talks, and I think I've recommended Untangling Skill and Luck, the presentation that he gave at Google on the, as a carve-out once. But his most recent paper analyzes the flows of capital into public and private markets and sort of the performance over time and the variance between firms, the variance from company to company by asset class. It's really interesting and very approachable, digestible paper. He went on Patrick's show to, to talk about it. So I read the whole paper... And And one of the very interesting takeaways is I think venture of all the asset classes he studied, which mostly focus on venture capital, public markets, and leverage buyout firms. And of the three, as sort of most people know, hedge fund managers have incredible reversion to the mean or regression. (laughs) Zero persistence of performance. Exactly. So like the top five uh, firms or people one year or, you know, one decade are completely are not to be seen at all the the next decade and maybe not even the next year and it's it totally rotates but among venture firms you have this tremendous persistence where even for decades you have uh, a firm that did well that sort of continues to do well in the future and i think david this this notion of what you're you're sort of referring to of the the sort of accumulation, frankly, if we want to go Hamilton Helmer on this, the the power that sort of accumulates yeah, uh, it, it is. for a venture firm where it's brand power. It's a hundred percent brand. That's exactly what it is. And so you have higher quality relationships with downstream investors, which we'll talk about. You have higher quality relationships with potential customers, potential uh, employees. And of course, the most important one, higher quality relationships with the next entrepreneur that you're going to fund. And that's why you just have this tremendous amount of, at least in the paper, he doesn't specify the answer, but he hypothesizes because he's a good scientist. um, And there's no way to know the answer for sure that the persistence largely comes from this sort of brand halo that comes from being able to attract the next great entrepreneur because you've had great returns in the past. So by being a company in your fund, maybe it's causal and uh, they'll cause your company to to generate a great return too. The point I, w- I want to try and land here is that like it's real. It, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> like It's ephemeral, but it's also real. <laughs> and if you are funded by one of these firms, you will feel it. Because we're here and because people who are listening to this episode have almost certainly listened to our Sequoia episodes, we did ask Doug Leone about this directly at the end of the Sequoia Part 2 episode. And I, I, there's almost no way Doug was going to say it on our show that that sort of like it's easier at Sequoia now than it used to be because they have this brand halo. In fact, he said the very opposite, which was that we have to not become complacent and it's all about our our next investment. And he had the um, great quote about the chickens running around in the back. Right? Yeah. <laughs> For sure. You got to go listen to the episode. I can't do it justice. For sure. Uh, especially yeah, in that Doug voice. It was unsaid on that episode, but is absolutely what we're talking about here is that firms like Sequoia uh, have just like an unbelievable brand halo that, that creates that persistence of returns over time. Okay, so the final bucket <laughs> is a fun one uh, that definitely bears discussing. And that is simply doing nothing. (laughs) Uh, It's very rare. And this is, I think, where a lot of the rightly justified teasing of the VC industry comes from, of everybody trying to add value. But this is sort of, you know, just following the the Hippocratic Oath, you know, uh, uh, first do no harm maxim and say, like, like, I'm not even going to pretend to add value. 
I'm just instead going to focus on making good investment decisions. And like, that's all I'm going to do. There's a, a funny story that um, I'll tell on this. The friend uh, who I'll just say, because uh, it was so long in the past, worked at Eventbrite uh, in their early days. And because we just had Kevin and Julia on the show, they were raising one of their early rounds after the Sequoia round. He was talking to one of the VCs and, and the VC said, look, like, you know, there's when it comes to VCs adding value to your company, there's like, you know, 10% of the folks out there are really good. They're really going to add value and help you build your company. Probably, you know, 70% of the folks out there are, are, are going to like actually detract value from your company if you follow all of their advice, you know, and then there's the middle where it's like neutral. And, uh, and my friend was like, well, okay, well, like, who are you? <laughs> you know? And he was like, oh, I'm not going to tell you anything. You're just going to take my money and you're never going to hear from me again. <laughs> and I think they, I think they, they did end up going with him. And this is a totally viable approach. You know, they would probably protest here, although I'd be interested in their reaction. I would put Founders Fund in this bucket. They have a good brand and there's definitely some halo effect from that brand. But I think they're pretty open about like, look, we focus on making investment decisions every investment decision initial and follow on we'll get to follow on later in in this series we make a first principles decision on each of those and look you know if we can help your company we'll help your company but like don't count on that from us you know we're we're just here to provide right. you capital that's not why you should go with us yeah that's interesting i mean i think <laughs> to your point to give one more anecdote i asked a founder fairly recently in the last couple of years about a certain firm and i said well how, what percentage of the sort of like net value came from the capital. And this person was like, oh, 110%. <laughs> so it was negative 10% from everything else. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so, uh, <laughs> yes, there, there are many people who do worse than sort of providing absolutely no value. I will say another thing here, a, a way that uh, a firm, and a good question to ask if you're an entrepreneur is, so what's your follow-on strategy? Because a way that, and, and I, David, I can't remember if we're going to get to this in the outline, but a way that a, a funder, especially an early stage funder, uh, can be helpful later is by continuing to participate in future rounds, by continuing to signal to the market, I have inside information and I'm still excited. If you want to be skeptical and round portfolio services to zero, which there are some you should and some you shouldn't, this is definitely one that's sort of like unquestionably value creative for a company, which is being able to generate positive signal uh, in the market by using your own capital. A positive signal in the market. Also, if you like truly, really hit a rough patch, a beautiful example of this is is Smartsheet, the great company in Seattle. Like, if you hit a rough patch and nobody else is willing to fund you, but this VC firm has a track record and the capital available to, you know, if as long as you're not like, as long as you're trying, that they're gonna give you capital to do that. I mean, Madrona did this multiple times with Smartsheet. The company really struggled in the early days and. Uh, and now it's a you know five billion dollar plus public company, uh, so th there is a lot of value to that. Do you remember what Madrona owned according to the S one in uh, in the oh, IPO? It was almost thirty percent, and it was through doing these multiple bridge rounds and inside rounds, uh, funding the company uh, when when nobody else would. What kind of early stage fund gets to own thirty percent at IPO of a multi billion dollar company? It's incredibly rare because of the future dilution that happens. And David, it's because of exactly what you're talking about: is continuing to support through rough patches. Yeah, and I mean, talk about value creation. <laughs> you know, you're capturing some of that value by getting more equity in the company. But like, the company would have died. <laughs> and not only is it not dead, it's a multi billion dollar public company. So this stuff is real. This is also a good place to make the point. I was going to do this later, but we should we should have done it up front. Of um, you know, 
there certainly are VCs who either don't think this aspect of being a VC, the company building part is, is that important, you know, some who just abdicate altogether. And, and I respect that in the do nothing bucket, but like, this is like people's lives <laughs> that you're affecting here. And I think it's really important to keep that mindset as a VC, especially if you're a board member or close to it, like the decisions that get made impact these companies, impact people's lives. You really need to take that responsibility. Uh, I certainly do take that with like a high degree of responsibility. For sure. For Uh, sure. Okay. Those are the buckets that we just covered, you know, sort of direct you personally, active in portfolio services, passive and brand halo effect, and then, and then the, the do nothing (laughs) approach. And I will say one more note on the do nothing approach, being a supportive board member, this is like, this is a great Brad Feld one, just being a supportive person who's there to sort of ask questions and not even necessarily offer heavy handed opinions. You know, Foundry Group is like notoriously good at this of like, be there, listen, they're helpful in many ways. I mean, they, they have kind of a benchmarky approach of we're sort of partners and not that much else. They famously have this sort of mesh network approach where they'd rather each company help each other rather than this sort of like top down heavy, heavy services thing. But like their ethos is very much like we invested in you, you know, we'll continue to make obviously decisions about future financings and things like that. But like, we're here to be supportive for you, not necessarily that active, but like do table stakes supportive things as humans to make sure that you can do your operate at your very best. That could be loosely qualified under do no harm, but it's amazing how value oh, creative I would, that I would put can that be. as like way more than yes. doing no harm. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's like the most evolved, I think, is like do no harm while also being actively, you know, caring about and helpful. <laughs> Let's talk about the actual like stuff where we've been talking about buckets. We've been talking about value company building. Like wh- what do you actually do? What are we talking about here? <laughs> David, we talked about it's value. What do you mean? Why do we need to get any more specific than that? Tell me what you do here. <laughs> this is this is like the uh, Always Sunny episode where Frank uh, goes back to work. And Frank is Danny DeVito for anyone who hasn't watched. He's like goes back to this weird 80s conglomerate that he started, you know, 30 years before this episode. And he's in like his suit and tie and everything. And at some point, Charlie asks him, so like, hey, like, what does the company make? And he looks at him and he goes, I don't know what you mean. He's like, no, no like, what do we make? And he goes, we make money. He's like, no, like, what do you produce? What do you? And he's like, money. (laughs) And it's left unsaid the entire episode what this like 80s pinstripe company actually does. So That sounds uh, just like a VC. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Or an episode of Silicon Valley. First, we're going to talk about sort of like the routine, probably going to do this in every company, the, the, you know, the good stuff, the the day-to-day stuff. First and biggest bucket of this is, is board work and and board meetings specifically as Ben, as, as you mentioned, there, there's two elements to a board and board works. There's the governance element of it. And that's, you know, everything from setting the plan for the year, the financial plan for the year, the organizational plan for the year and approving that, uh, hiring and firing, doing various shareholder approvals, like option grants and stuff like that. Um, you know, that's, that's like important, but fine. The stuff that gets written down in the meeting minutes. Yep. The stuff that the lawyers you know, <laughs> take down and, and then paper afterwards. Then there's the advising aspect of being a board member. Uh, and so this is, you know, input and perspective on company strategy, operations, various topics, recruiting, a lot of that. 
and then certainly fundraising and future financings. I'm actually going to talk about that outside of the board context because I think it makes more sense there, but that also gets wrapped into many board meetings. We'll go into the nuts and bolts of some of that, but I, I think it's interesting here to pause first. And as I was thinking about this and my uh, time in VC starting in the over 10 years ago now. Wow. Crazy. I think there's been a pretty Grandpa big, Rosenthal. Ev- I know, I know. <laughs> um, I think there's been a pretty big evolution of how boards and board meetings operate uh, over the last 10 years, as there's been lots of change in the venture industry. So when I first joined, you know, it was a legacy of a lot of what we talked about. Board meetings were six to eight times a year. They were super formal, old school, like, you know, there were major, every major company decision and strategy was hashed out at them, sometimes across multiple discussions before, during, after the board meetings. And even early stage. Even, even, yeah, series A stage companies. You know, these are three to four hour sessions, the entire executive team, the entire board, nobody would call in. It's all in person. Usually there's a dinner the night before or afterwards where the discussion continues. It was very heavyweight. Now the pros and cons to to this, which we'll get into. I think one thing that's really interesting that is is more lost now, but was a big pro of that approach was uh it was focused on everybody working together as a team. So like the board worked together, even though you had different board members from different venture firms, in the context of this company and everybody coming together, everybody was on the same page. You're working as a team across the aisle, so to speak. Which actually, from a fiduciary perspective, makes a lot of sense because not only are those uh, our board members fiduciaries to their firms and the investors that are the pool of capital for their firm, but when you join the board of a company, you're also a fiduciary to that company. So of course it would make sense that you have this camaraderie and teamwork and incredible amount of time together to to yeah, work as a group. You, you, you all... literally become a director, you know, director and it's called directors and officers insurance for a reason. Like you are a, an official position of the company um and you should be working as a team but uh, the days where everything looked just like that are pretty much behind us i think now lots of companies can do and should occasionally operate in that function but it's not constant it used to be that like that was the only context of board work now things are much more real time much more iterative much more fluid and and informal most of the actual work discussions strategy both setting and and operations um happen outside of a formal context like that they're in informal one-on-one or small group discussions they're over phone calls they're over text they're over slack you know it's like everything in our business world today it's 24 7 it's not a it's not a moment in time there's two things that are a part of this one is what you just said that like everything became the the sort of always on world and conversations happen in in real time and through many communication channels the other one is that so much money flooded into venture capital as an asset class that every check at every stage got two to three times larger and so you have seed rounds that used to be 500k that are now two to five million dollars that can be 10 times larger and so suddenly you have these checks being written for three, four million dollars when a company has done virtually nothing yet, has no customers. It sort of depends on not anybody's going to go out and raise four million dollars for a company without having any customers, but lots of people do. 
you've got an amount of governance that tends to come with that. Like you're not putting four million in on a safe and not having any governance rights associated with it and saying like, well, all right, that's my capital's in there and like let me know at the next round. That's the thing you would do for a hundred K. And so you have a board member now because there's governance associated with putting that significant amount of capital in, but the company's actually not mature enough to do things like six to eight times a year board meetings where everybody comes and you review the numbers and you review the pipeline and you talk about the hiring plan. And because like your hiring plan is going to be like, yeah, we want to add two devs this year before we f- we hopefully launch and then hopefully find product market fit. Like the amount of capital is mapped to the governance requirement of having a board, but the company maturity is completely mismatched from where it used to be when you had a board. That is absolutely true. I think that's one of the reasons why this all sort of started moving in this direction. And then I think, again, we will debate here, you know, rightly or wrongly, pros and cons. I think that has also kept trickling down that even as companies get larger, get more, start maturing more, the number of companies that I think are strictly in the old school board practices format these days are, are pretty few. Even larger companies that are mature enough, they they do board meetings, but they don't do them six or eight times a year. They do them four times a year. Some companies, those four times a year are really like everybody prepares ahead of time. It's a big lift. It's a big thing. Some of them, I know companies like this where the actual board meetings are, no, they're like an hour or 90 minutes. Lots of people do it over Zoom. It's literally just about the governance approvals and Yep. then you know you're in and out i'm on an early stage board where literally it's just a notion doc so there's no like big you know expansive you know 40 50 page decks we do board meetings four times a year and there's an every other week catch-up call that's 30 minutes and it's like exactly the high resolution thing you were talking about david it's like many more one-off conversations but not convening the whole board in a big formalized setting as often Yep. And so an obvious pro to this is like, hey, business and life doesn't happen in six to eight week chunks anymore. (laughs) Like, you know, everything is real time. You need to be much more reactive in terms of strategy, in terms of operations, in terms of being dialed into a company. That's all good. I think what's lost is some of this time to reflect, time to step back, and some of this team element too. Like when you're doing these high resolution, more individual conversations, you're doing it with one-off board members, you know, you're not, you're not getting the whole camaraderie approach. But the thing you're trading and you are getting there is by having more touch points with more of your investors, there's more opportunity for them to add value. And like, yes. we, we started this section promising how, like what that value was going to be. So we should get to that. But like, just to tease, like if you learn something new about your customer segment and you say, do you know anyone in XYZ industry, you know, you can get that information much more real time and get a potential customer introduction in much more real time, or you open a headcount, boom, you can quickly inform your, your board of leads, find the right search firm, exactly. Like, et you can, you can sort of move more quickly on those things and tap the network and resources of, of your investor. We should say too, this is a great, uh, you know, part of the reason why, um, friend of the pod, uh, John Malaskiriazzi started, uh, started Quaystar with, with his co-founders of, you know, provide a platform for governance for companies as people are moving towards this more higher, uh, what did you say? Higher resolution, more iterative board structure. Like some of the governance gets, gets lost. So shout out to John and thanks for sponsoring our, our last, uh, <laughs> uh last special. Yep. <laughs> Ben, what actually happens in these board meetings and some of these decisions, whether you're doing it in a formal or an informal process? 
Well, usually you uh, save anything that's like the Robert's Rule of Order type stuff for the end. So I, I was on a board last year where the CEO would ask the lawyers what the magical incantation was that we needed to say to approve the previous minutes. And so, you know, someone moves to approve and there's a second. And for anyone who hasn't been in a boardroom setting before, it will shock you that that you actually do all that. It feels uh, like a, you're either in like a British court or a fraternity house, but one or the other. It, 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 it's, you might as well be saying these things in Latin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So of course there's those things. The things that tend to happen are a review of the business. So you're talking about how you did since your last board meeting on KPIs, including the financial ones. You're doing forward-looking forecasting, both on finances and what those KPIs are for next time, debating them, um, what should our goals be, the CEO coming with a recommendation, uh, the board sort of formally or informally approving the plan. And it could be a budget plan or it could be a you know, here are the targets that we want to hit on various KPIs in our business. But basically, the purpose is to get everyone aligned so that if that those goals get hit, then everyone looks at each other and says that was a success. And we all agreed on that plan. And you don't end up in a situation where the CEO is over executing something. And the board's like, wait, 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 even if we succeeded at that thing, we wouldn't be happy about it. It's a lot around alignment. And it's an opportunity, hopefully, if you pick the right investors, to be able to tap the collective wisdom of a group of people who should weigh in on what your goals should be for your particular industry or or business model in order to set you up for for success. Right. It's like our plan is to grow 100% this year. Is that good or bad? Like, well, really depends on the context of, you know, if your industry is growing 400%, like then you're you're really sucking wind. Uh, But uh, if your industry is growing 20%, then you're doing great. I think also at some point in time in the you know, transition from early stage company to mid and growth stage company, when you find product market fit, I think there's a really important process that Hamilton talked about in seven powers of finding, you know, your power. Like you've gone from like invention to like, now you have to figure out what's your power, what's your defensibility. And, and this is a role that, you know, again, (laughs) a lot of VCs and board members harm more than they help here, but having somebody who's really good, really engaged, really deeply thinking about your business, your industry, the dynamics, and has the experience and pattern recognition can really help here. The things that I discussed a minute ago were largely execution topics or tactics. And David, here you're talking about strategy. The other part of the board's responsibility is to set strategy for the company. And the CEO similarly comes with recommendations, but usually will come with, here's the open topics that I really want to discuss. Here, here's my my thinking on it, but let's decide as a group and we'll take, you know, I'm open to, if this is a two-hour board meeting, let's take an hour and, and work on this meaty topic because I think it's the most important, highest leverage use of all of your minds in this sort of collective forum because rarely, David, like you said, are we actually all together to be able to quickly get on the same page and not be trading a bunch of one-off emails that are hard to get alignment on when the company could go a lot of different directions. Yeah. And so if you like this stuff, like, like I do, and I suspect you do too, Ben, like, uh, this is the really, really fun stuff, at least for me, like when there's a question like this and when there's a, you know, a formal board meeting, like I just have so much fun, like, you know, the, like preparing before the meeting, you know, usually the CEO or the, or the management team will send out, you know, a deck or some or a narrative or some materials in advance. What I try and do is like, you know, get those, give them a quick glance just to like understand what the context is. But then before reading them kind of in, in detail, I like to think like, okay, I'm going to step back. 
what's my perspective coming into this? Like write that down. Like, what do I think the most important issues are? What do I think the biggest needle movers are? And then what I like to do is actually go back again, still before reading this, you know, board iteration, uh, materials is go read the past, the past one and be like, okay, what was important then? What's changed since then? And then sit down and try and prepare like, okay, coming into this board meeting, like, what's my perspective on what's going to be the biggest needle movers. There's an old Sequoia blog post about kind of questions to ask yourself as a board member, like pre and during board meetings. And and I think these are good. First is, are we executing? We meaning the company, are we executing? Are we innovating? Are we hiring? Are we building a management team? Are we growing the customer base? And are we doing so according to the last plan that we laid out (laughs) and Depending on the answer to that question, is that plan still good enough to win or do we need a new plan and new targets? It's missing the power development, but again, that's specific to a certain stage. But I think the more you can like be asking yourself these questions ahead of time and during, the better you're going to be prepared to help. Bringing in the way that we opened this episode by saying that the entrepreneur will, of course, be the most domain deep in their business and the investor offers a valuable but different perspective sort of uh, by seeing lots of businesses there's a similar thing here david which is what you're talking about where the investor has fresh eyes and there's value in having fresh eyes and so a way to add value as a board member is if you are a smart person who's experienced in this area and has fresh eyes that on its own a priori is valuable. And so if you can establish a good partnership where you trust the crap out of the management team for being incredibly deep and deferring to them on most important decisions because they have the most data, but bringing your fresh eyes and saying, hey, I, I haven't thought about this as much as you. Here's my opinion and why I'm thinking this. Like, let's have a debate. And do you see where I'm coming from? And now I can understand where you're coming from because you actually do have more data. And that, that tension in itself just has value. This is a thing that is not in your agenda, but it came up and I want to like, I want to talk about it here. So we've made sort of like snarky references a few times to VCs detracting value. And I want to pose the question, do you think that is all because of misaligned incentives or do VCs detract value for other reasons? And while you think about it, I'll offer a little more context. So the VCs are dual fiduciaries. They have a fiduciary responsibility to their investors and the fiduciary responsibility to the company. And basically what that means is that uh, they want to maximize the value creation both for their investors, but then for the company, for all shareholders of that company. (laughs) Right. (laughs) There's lots of places that incentives could get misaligned. But do they really care about the other shareholders? (laughs) Right. The, The way that VCs could ostensibly detract value, that's not because of incentive misalignment, but really just because like they're trying really hard, but it doesn't, it doesn't actually move the needle is more in like ineffective portfolio services where you can sort of distract and waste a lot of time if it's a very specialized company that needs to hire from a very specific talent pool, but the firm's talent resource has no ability to access that talent pool. I'm just throwing out an example of like a way that the firm with its attempt to create value could actually take away time and and focus from the business and, and detract value. But I'm actually having a hard time coming up with other ways beyond misaligned incentives that value detraction occurs. I'm really glad you asked this question because it's, I think this is an important thing to think about and reflect on. I wonder if actually the industry has kind of moved past this would be my answer. My hypothesis is some of the value detraction in the past and to the extent it still goes on 
currently is is due to misaligned incentives. And that's real. That happens for sure. But I think a lot of the the trope about this in the past was like old white dude who doesn't get it anymore in a Patagonia vest at the meeting, just spouting off about some random stuff that like clearly this person has no idea what they're talking about and didn't even read the deck. You know, (laughs) I think that actually happens a lot less, if at all anymore. I think it used to happen because VC was this sleepy industry that was really hard to get into and even harder to get fired once you were (laughs) in it. (laughs) And so you just had like all these people around that like, didn't need to be around anymore or didn't deserve to be around. The industry's gotten so much more open and competitive since then that I think like you have a lot more aggressive, uh, well, you've always had aggressive people in VC, but like um, aggressively intelligent and sharp and like doing work to stay at the top of their game people in the industry now. So I think that probably happens less of the just like, yeah, it's fair. This person has no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> because uh, you as a board member represent three things, you represent like, obviously the company, your firm, but then also yourself in the world in the way that this whole like solo capitalist rolling fund, uh, build a social media presence thing is happening. Like you have a lot more people who now have like a third pull, which is to like build their own brand in addition to the dual fiduciary. And I think that actually creates more misalignment. Oh, more misalignment. Misalignment, yeah, where you have people who are uh, noisier on Twitter but less helpful to the company Uh, than they sort of would represent. So obviously the chickens have to come home to roost there. Like if you're if you're legitimately not adding value, then you can't build a big reputation of adding value. I think that's probably more harmless though, because people like that often aren't actually board members or or influential advisors to these companies. So like it's just noise. They, you know? they just sell really hard to get on the cap table, and then when they don't show up, they're they're neutral. Yeah. You definitely used to have, you know, uh, VC because the industry was so much smaller and like there were, weren't that many firms and there weren't that many people at these firms. You'd have v- VCs who owned a lot of your company, were on your board and like didn't read your decks and didn't even remember what you did. <laughs> like, I think those days are, are over. Uh, yeah, I have a buddy who's a, who's the head of product at a late stage unicorn sort of IPO SPAC target who is telling me that uh, in board meetings IPO SPAC target yes <laughs> in in board meetings uh, everyone sort of like looks around the room like the executive team to, toward the CEO to know if they should listen when a board member spouts off and there's really only one member that they sort of consistently listen to and otherwise there's like placation that goes on where everyone yeah, nods yeah, it's yeah, this great yeah, idea yeah, thank you yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh so good so that brings up the next important point which is how you should behave during these meetings like many things bill Gurley has has had a lot of good uh sayings and writings about this i think it is really important just like you're saying ben to like in the context of these meetings keep a filter on yourself so like everything you think about saying during a board meeting you should ask it in your head first think about whether it's going to add value in that moment or if you should ask it in a one-on-one or over email afterwards, or if you should not ask it at all. (laughs) I love Uh, this. Even Bill, I've heard reference this as the write it down philosophy. When you have a thought, you write it down. And then by the end of the meeting, you have a big list. And then you decide what of those things actually should be addressed in the room. Yep. In the room or, or by a follow-up or not at all. And, uh, I actually really love this because Ben and probably listeners, as you know, I, I'm naturally not like this at all in my day-to-day life. Like (laughs) I, I love spouting ideas. But there is something kind of sacred in, you know, a board meeting, again, back to like 
this is a company, this is people's lives, this is serious work. Like you better take this seriously and you should write down your thoughts and think about them before you say them. Then follow-ups after the meeting, you know, related to this, what I like to do, and, you know, I shamelessly rip this right off of Bill Gurley, is then send the CEO or the whole management team or the founders follow-up email afterwards with like, after reflecting on it and writing on it myself, like, okay, here's my understanding of what, you know, I think we, we decided is the most important thing here are maybe some follow-ups that I didn't bring up during the meeting that might be worth, you know, pursuing. And, and then what's great about that too, is you, once again, you have a written record of like that you can then reference before the next board meeting of like, great. Okay. This is what I thought last time. This is what I said, you know, a, it's a good discussion, uh, kicking off point with the management team itself, but, but then you can like keep yourself like, okay, yep. Got this cadence. Here's the last time. Here's this time. Here's next time. There's so much information that comes at all of us all the time. And the, the news cycles are so short. And I don't just mean that in a news cycle sense. I mean that in like a company sense too, like so much around the company happens so quickly especially because all these investments tend to be in developing industries that it's actually very useful, not for any sort of like, now I have a written record so I can like use it in any nefarious way. It's more like it would be great to really like have that codified somewhere what we decided so that like I can remind myself because this stuff changes so fast. Totally. Especially because GPs at, at established venture firms who've been investing for five plus years, like if that's who you have on their board, they're on 10 other boards or more. And so like any shortcuts to be able to sort of like get high leverage on time and, and make it the most sort of like effective and hopefully value adding to the company in the time that the the management team has with that board member, the better. Totally. All right. So I think that wraps it for board work, unless there's anything else you want to add. To summarize it, like the the best thing you can usually do in a boardroom as a board member is stay quiet and be thoughtful and write stuff down and then follow up about it. The second most valuable thing you can do is think about if you have a divergent opinion on strategy or on execution, think about am I qualified to push that we should do something else because the the management team has very likely thought about it much more than the investor. And so what is the reason that you are entitled to believe that we should go another direction? And to be clear, that doesn't have to be, I have this direct experience. It could be like, no, I'm going to go do some research and think about this and, and see what other context is out there. And can I bring this other context in perspective? Right. That's an important one. And then thirdly, I think there's in what way is my firm or my network a shortcut for the way for this company to figure it out. Totally. This is a, a, a primary, again, whether in a formal or an informal kind of board context, this is the primary conduit for your firm's resources to come to bear for in help of this company. So that's board meetings. The next buckets will be shorter than, than board meetings, we promise. But <laughs> it is just like a board meeting. <sighs> so long. <laughs> you should really listen to this as a pleasure podcast, you know, what you do in your free time. But we have such fun banter. Yeah, sure. You keep telling yourself that. <laughs> oh, man, I am a VC. Can't get away. <laughs> okay, so the next bucket is future financings, follow, you know, raising your next round and exits. So I think this is an area where investors can have a huge impact on companies because like you do this and see this all the time. Founders do this very infrequently. And especially if they are early stage first time founders, like 
not at all. <laughs> like they're, you know, you may have just led their first round or even their second round. Like, great, they've done this one or two times. The next time they do this, they're still neophytes, essentially. This is the exact thing that we were talking about recently with regulatory capture, where like the regulators and the CEOs of the entrenched companies see each other much more often than sort of the innovators who are trying to do something outside of regulations. And so the regulators are sort of beholden to the big company CEOs. And this works kind of the same way when you're thinking about that next round of financing, like what series A entrepreneur has had 10 years of relationship building with series B financiers? Like you're going to have like one or two contacts, whereas this venture firm is playing Maybe an iterated game. Maybe if they were game. a VC before starting the company, <laughs> like, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I find myself continually, even 10 years into doing this, uh, surprised and having to revise, you know, reset this calibration because it's so natural to me to us like, oh, yeah, I know lots of investors. I know people at every firm. Right. Like, it's, this is what I do. It's an abnormal thing don't. to have relationships with 100 VCs. Like that is a, str- yeah. yeah. There's obviously your network and direct introductions for early stage founders. There's lots of, you know, coaching on, on the pitch, on the context, on the positioning, on the process, how do you manage the process? And then depending on the strengths of your relationships with people at, at various firms that are considering, you know, investing the back channel, like, you know, the helping and another great girly quote, uh, you know, that he used to say is people think being a VC is all about like you invest and you make these decisions and then you, you know, get in board meetings, you talk about company strategy mostly what you're doing is selling <laughs> like you you are selling you're selling the uh, next round investors to come in you're selling candidates i've thought about this as like a, a younger person who's uh, uh, who's writing checks like even if you don't feel that like it's a big deal to talk to you like if a ceo is selling hard for an employee to join the company and they say look i you know, we've had a lot of conversations. Do you want to talk with our board member? Like the the office carries weight for someone who's new to the company it, to be able to speak with a board member, get their different perspective on it. It's just a very different thing than talking with someone that you've talked to 10 times about joining the company. Uh, the thing I was going to add to what you were saying, you know, in a, in a recruiting context is we're talking about more mid-level people, not like senior execs are going to expect to talk to a board member. But if you as a board member talk to you know, more middle or, or junior level people in the company during a recruiting process, it shows you care. Like almost no matter what you say, like you care. And that is a huge differentiator. Yeah, that's a great point. So like popping up to, you know, leaning on investors to help you raise that next round and and to recruit, this is like the no brainer way to add value. This is the structural systemic way that that investors can add value. It's almost like it's not quite table stakes because like it doesn't say in the docs that the investor should help you raise your next round, but like that is the thing that they are uniquely positioned to do. That if you're a founder, you should lean aggressively on that investor to um, run through your deck over and over and over and over again. Like put yourself through their cauldron of revving you on the deck and coaching you on your deck and coaching you on how to navigate that next fundraise. Because as good as an entrepreneur is at telling their story, a VC is 10 times better at understanding how it will be received by other VCs who have similar incentives yeah. to them. It's a specific context i've been thinking about this with one company in particular i've been been working with as a founder and a ceo you're telling your story in lots of different contexts you're telling it to customers you're telling it to recruits you're telling it to like but an investor context is a specific context that is often 
different from those other contexts. And so uh, an experienced VC uh, who's already invested in your company is going to be able to help you shape that positioning. Like, what do you describe? Like, yeah, yeah. Like if you're talking to a customer, you should talk about like the benefit, like what a customer is going to get out of using this. A VC is not going to care as much about what your customers get out of it. They want to know, is this market big and why is this an opportunity and why are you going to win? Yeah, that was a mistake I made for a long time as a founder was having de- similar sales decks to pitch decks. And like the most glaring example is like investors want to know how big your gross margin is and customers want to know how small your gross margin is. <laughs> and they don't, customers aren't going to uh. think about that in, in, in that exact way, but like you want to almost pitch exact opposite things to both of them. <laughs> Again, like not to say investors don't care that you serve your customers. Well, they do. They want you to do that, but in service of building a big company, <laughs> This is a nuance that I think is important. It kind of only comes, I think only really comes with experience in building your network within the investor community. But we're talking about selling, right? Like on behalf of your portfolio companies as they're raising their next round, selling like a salesperson is not going to work. You know, if you, if you start calling up your VCs that, you know, other VCs, you know, and you're giving them the, you know, laying it on thick with the pitch, that's probably not going to go over very well, especially with more experienced ones. They're going to be like, yeah, okay, why, why is David calling me and pitching this one so hard? Again, it comes back to sort of positioning. What, what I think you want to get to over time that I think leads to being successful at this is you really get to know other VCs in your network, what they are looking for. And because the reality is, especially once you become more seasoned as a, as a venture investor, you know your strike zone. You know the deals that you're going to do that you're looking for. And you're just going to do those. It's going to be really hard for you to get across the line to do something that's not in your strike zone. If you can start to learn in your network, what are the strike zones of people in your network? Then you can be like, okay, great. Like <laughs> this company is raising around these set of investors, this is in their strike zone. I can call them and say like, yep, you're going to love this because of X. Great. And then I just saved the entrepreneur a ton of time from going and throwing balls to, you know, investors that aren't going to swing. We have a thing in PSL that we call fundraising as a service. That's basically like the process of building your pipeline and like the, the investor pipeline and who you should be pitching at what firms and when and scheduling the cadence of that. And actually, it's interesting being in, in Seattle pre-COVID. It was when should you plan on scheduling your trips to the Valley and what days of the week uh-huh. should that be? And when are you going to have to come back for partner meetings? But like your f- existing investors are going to be, in addition to telling your story, the very best at understanding who you should be pitching when, what your funnel looks like, what your you know, have them run this as a CRM process with you. Because again, this is a thing that is a structural component where no matter how good the entrepreneur is, they do it once, twice, three times. And the the VCs, this is like that they're in and out of this all the time. So then there's exits, which is basically the same thing, except with acquirers or bankers or SPACs, you know, et cetera, instead of other VCs. You know, it's kind of interesting, like some firms invest a lot in this. So like Benchmark is actually really, really great at this. Like if you look at their portfolio companies and their exits, the time to exit for a lot of their big winners is vastly shorter than the rest of the market. So like Snap, Instagram, Duo Security, Stitch Fix, Zillow, like all these things are going public or getting bought like six years or less. <laughs> and uh, playing the IRR game more than the cash on cash game. Yeah. You know, and, and there's value to that. Like some of these companies should be 
public companies were acquired. I think this is one of the reasons why Gurley campaigned so hard against stay private longer and probably why Uber was such a thorn in in everybody's side there like because it's kind of against their ethos now interestingly sequoia is the opposite here right like they really don't care like if things are going well if your company is doing well like they just want to be a compounding shareholder as long as possible like you could be public you could be private really don't care ruloff is still on the board of square sequoia is still a large shareholder in square years after going public Mm -hmm. like don't care you get burned from apple once in the 70s and you forever are changed as an organization <laughs> yep it's uh it is amazing like the just how the histories of various firms shape their uh organizational dynamics and strategies um, you raise the exact same point that like your investor is going to have way more downstream investor relationships than you are. It's not as true because it's more industry specific, but there's a chance that it's also true for potential acquirers where a good CEO is constantly doing business development with potential acquirers, potential partners, people in the ecosystem to be on their radar. But if you have an investor that invests a lot in this space or maybe knows the corp dev person at that company, then, or, or, you know, the, the exec who's going to potentially sponsor an acquisition came from one of their former portfolio companies, something like that. Not only is it a a different Rolodex, but it's it's potentially a sort of more, it's a broader Rolodex if the company wants to think more creatively about who should we sell to that isn't one of the obvious three people that I've developed deep relationships with. Yeah. I mean, it's like um, the IM thread conversation between Matt Kohler and Kevin Sistrom that came out in the legal in the antitrust hearings, which was so great. We did our little YouTube discussion of that. You know, yeah, Matt was a senior executive at Facebook who reported to Zuck. Like, of course, he's gonna like help navigate that for for Kevin and Instagram when that acquisition process got started. Yep, great point. Everything we've said so far is basic, neutral to good things. I think it's worth spending a few minutes on the challenging stuff of company building right two buckets i want to talk about here the first is in my mind like the the really really hardest hard stuff everything else is easy compared to this and and that's co-founder and executive turnover this is super hard there's a bunch of different approaches you know the old school vcs <laughs> made it easy they were just looking to fire the founders as soon as possible <laughs> after the investment that was one approach New school VCs, you know, I think we're now coming out of this era post Uber and and a lot of stuff that's happened, but the never fire founders approach that VCs took for, for a long time, you know, the reality is like, there's probably the right fit is somewhere in between. Like you for sure don't want founders to leave the business. Like that is bad no matter what, but sometimes it's, necessary hard and things happen and um you know this is where there's almost i I don't think too much to say around like a prescription of how to do this because every every situation is is unique and this is like so emotionally painful and draining for everyone especially if you really care about the company so i have some thoughts but uh i don't know ben anything else you want to add to tee this up yeah i mean two things one is uh again getting back to the checks being bigger now are that more money is going into less mature companies so it's more likely that an organic founder breakup is going to happen after it's been capitalized because a lot of times founders or any relationship doesn't 
have to get tested until it gets hard. And so you don't really know if you're a good fit until there's something hard and scaling or, you know, dealing with how to spend money when you didn't used to have resources and now have resources like those can create friction. Also, just virtue of running a company of any size together, you know, for more than a few months uh, and then going into years is hard totally it's like a marriage totally and so that's point number one point number two uh it, it, boy this is quite the tee up is that co-founders you are actually less wedded to than investors and i don't mean emotionally but from a doc's perspective it's pretty wild that like when you bring on a preferred shareholder especially a board member especially one with you know all the rights that come with being a a, a board member in standard NVCA or anyone else's stocks whether or not you like each other you're pretty much in it unless there's something really really drastic that happens that you know meaningfully would impact the financials for a firm like the firm decides to totally write off the investment or or sell all their shares or something like something very very unusual but the far more common thing is you know the founder breakup and founders are early in their vesting um they're only bound by an employment agreement and so the founder could walk away they own you know 10 20% of the company 30% of the company whatever's vested so it sucks that there's all this equity that's already been doled out that you no longer have to incentivize people but it's a relatively clean break you don't get a clean break with your investors and so there is this very interesting like if there's a founder breakup the thing that endures is whoever stays continues to deal with the investor pretty much no matter what there're really two types of departures that you deal with, you know, at a at any company. One is a simply like a person is not the right person for the role that they are currently in anymore. That's the pretty straightforward thing. Usually, this happens with non-CEO founders, although sometimes CEOs are no longer the right CEO for the company um, for whatever reason. Those situations are you know, again, not easy, not easy at all, but the easier version of this, because like if everyone can step back and be rational either immediately or with some time, usually people know when they're not in the right role and they aren't happy and they aren't fulfilled. And like in many cases, there is still a role for that person at the company, just a different type of role, or maybe it's a founder becomes a board member or, you know, whatever, something like that. Again, I don't want to say this is easy, but like, when I see these scenarios, it's like, okay, you know, this isn't gonna be fun, but we can get through it. The much harder scenarios, I, I think mostly what you're talking about, Ben, which is real breakups. Like it's not motivated by somebody's role or performance. It's motivated by an interpersonal dynamic between co-founders where like the, the relationship is broken. And in those cases, it's just like, it sucks because it's like a divorce. Like, you know, you can say as a board member, you can be like, well, we, we need to, you know, let's get a coach in here. Let's get therapy. Let's get couples counseling. Like, if it's done though, it's done. And, uh, uh, and it's, and it's hard. And, and, and when, when that happens, I, I don't know, I'm curious what your experience has been with this bend because it happens a lot, especially with these early stage companies. You know, I've seen a bunch of these and I think generally when this happens, it's almost like a horcrux, you know, from Harry Potter, like you're splitting the soul of the company. And when someone leaves like this and you're never going to get that back, like companies can still recover, do okay, go on to new lives. But, um, 
this is a like it's a major blow when this happens. And and it sort of depends. Like if if they had already bottled lightning, then yes. But if they hadn't bottled lightning, then what is true is you're stuck with the I don't know what that right Harry Potter analogy is, but whatever's <laughs> left after the Horcrux, like you're left with the soul of the people who are still there. And if if what you had before was magic, then it's a bummer because it's it's very difficult to find magic again. If you didn't, like could be a good thing. And and is often a good thing. So let's go back to the topic of this episode, which is like actually company building. So the job of a VC helping in the company building process. So in these situations, how can the investor do that? Yeah, I mean, well, David, how can I be helpful? (laughs) How can I be helpful? Stepping back and thinking about, okay, with what has departed from the company, is there still potential for magic here to be created? And again, we're talking about all like, you know, pre, if you're already like well along the way of building a company and scaling, that's one thing, but pre that, if the answer to that is yes, then it's supporting the remaining, you know, founder or founders in the post-divorce period, so to speak. And this is hard to do. I've, I mean, I've never done it, but but having seen this a bunch now, I've, I wish I had, and I think I will going forward. If you think there's really like not going to be potential for magic going forward, just shutting down the company. Like, because I think in that case, it's just going to be much better. I experienced this once uh, a number of years ago with a company I was on the board of. And uh, you know, something like this happened and there was a an angel investor in the company who was a retired Sequoia partner. And he emailed the board and he was like, look, when this would happen at Sequoia, we would shut down the company immediately. And we were all like, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to salvage it. There's a path going forward. He was right. There was no path going forward. It would have been better, saved years of everyone's life if we had just been like, nope, like you're all talented people, but like this configuration, not going to work. Let's shut it down, return the capital move on to our next things. Fascinating. And there's another interesting data point that's related. And I, I'll i think of the name of the post and we'll put it in um, in the show notes, but it's a Fred Wilson post to bring back our AVC conversation from earlier, from a few years ago about how, uh, I think it's something like pivot versus shutdown. And he's sort of taking the contrarian take that most people take, which is like, look, everything you have before is baggage. Your team, your capital, the capital structure, like in cap table. Yeah. In all likelihood, if you have a new idea, like you should just go start a new company, get new investors on board, get new stakeholders broadly, you know, employees, everyone on board for your new idea and don't cart all the old baggage of the old thing along with it. And like, there's no right answer here, but it is worth for anybody thinking about that. That's a great blog post because it's worth sort of, it's really good weighing the pros and cons of like taking all the assets and accumulated sort of like goodwill in the world and and cohesion that we've built in the past and like is there enough transferable stuff to bring with us where it's actually better than starting over even though starting over is going to really suck it might be hard to raise money it might be hard to get it off the ground again it might be hard to rehire the team all that it's just an interesting set of trade-offs to think through yep Totally. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. That's such a good post. We'll we'll try and link to it below. But uh, if if we can't get it in there, just Google uh, ABC Fred Wilson pivots. Um, if it's on the internet, we're gonna put it in. Like, I, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> you're putting a, you're putting a stake in the ground. Yes. We're putting it in the notes. That's our commitment. <laughs> pivots. That's the last discussion here. So uh, this is sometimes related to co-founder departures, but I, I want to separate it out. 
This is interesting. So like, I agree with a lot of the Fred Wilson post about this and having seen and lived through a bunch of pivots and legacy cap tables and all that, like it is very worth considering shutting down, returning capital, starting anew and fundraising. Regardless of how you do this from a corporate structure, I love these moments personally when you've got a team that the team is still committed and wants to work together. They've had an experience where they tried to do something and it didn't work, but they still want to work together. Those moments are just magic for me because like now you can throw away all the rose colored glasses, all the baggage, all the sacred cows. Everybody can commit to like rationality. I find there's like hyper clarity that happens around then. And yet you have to find an idea and uh, something that could potentially a product market fit, but everybody's so motivated because nobody wants to experience what they just experienced of like slogging through not having product market fit. And I love moments like this. So there's a lot of, a lot of diverging opinions. Lots of investors are like, man, if there's a pivot, like I don't want to have anything to do with it. I just want to bail. Like nothing good comes of that. I am of the complete opposite opinion. Yeah. I mean, there's something special when you lose it all and then you feel like you have nothing left to lose. There's immense clarity that sort of comes from that. And there's also a weight that comes off of like when you were trying to do something really hard that wasn't working, there's a, a weight that's lifted off your chest of everybody, including the investors looking at each other and saying, we're going to stop trying to do that now because it's not working. And like that frees oh, it's so free. a management team up to be creative again. Oftentimes you can't be creative when you feel that weight on you. David, I'm stealing from your next section here a little bit, but like the most valuable you can be as an investor at this point is, is if you are committing to, yeah, we're going to do a pivot, like, committing to lifting that weight off and enabling the sort of creativity and newfound motivation to go run hard at something to to let that happen. Well, I think there are two elements to that. That once you're into it, which is great and valuable, I think even less so because a lot of that motivation is just going to come from the team internally. I think now this is super, super hard, but you know, looking back on my past 10 years working with companies, one of my you know moments that I just like, I know I'm going to remember for the rest of my career is helping a team identify that they need to do this. Because sometimes when you're, you know, a, a team and you're, you're running hard at something and it's not working, but you're so locked into it and you've got the blinders on and like, you're pushing that boulder up the hill and you don't want to give up. You don't want to be a quitter. I, this has happened one time in my career where I was just like, guys, <laughs> right. No <laughs> one know, wants this... to be the one who, who said this isn't working because you don't want to be the black sheep of the group. And like, you're an, a little bit of a detached third party as the investor. So you, you can be the one when everybody sort of like knows it's in zombie mode, but no one wants to be the one to flag it. Again, this is delicate and you got to, again, keep in mind, like this is a company, this is real, this is important people's lives and, and work. But there's also the upside. If you can say like, look, this isn't working. Let's find something that is. And it gets into that freeing moment. Like, oh, it's just so much fun. Yeah. Again, this is where breadth versus depth. And I think that's probably the theme of this episode is figuring out when to apply the values of depth and the entrepreneur bringing the and the company bringing everything to bear on that side. And when breadth, it makes sense to index heavily on breadth when the investor can bring their sort of worldview to bear. This is definitely one of those where David like, how did you know 
what it looks like when something is working and what it looks like when something is not. It's because you've been involved with companies that were working before at a similar stage yeah. with a similar <laughs> business model. And so and companies that were not working. Right. It's almost like rather than sort of like looking at a world that's made up of a bunch of mysterious shapes, like you're the one who has the glasses that helps you like make sense of the shapes. I'll point out to bolster my case for, you know, any, any investors that are screaming at us on the other side of like, it's not worth your time. Here is a short list of companies we've, most of which we've had as main topic episodes on the show, some of which we haven't and need to, that were pivots born out of moments almost exactly like this. Seed stage, very early pivots. Yep. Pinterest, Instagram, Discord, Slack, Twitch, PayPal, (laughs) all of those born out of moments like this. Yep. It's a great point. Now, which isn't to say if you pivot, you're going to be successful, but there yeah. is this like Sur- this massive just, like, survivorship bias weight. in that list. Yeah, exactly. And it really is is a fun moment. When it's it's my favorite company building moment when when that ha- can happen. Yep. Um, all right, bring us home. Right. What are what are some what are some truths that you've experienced that have worked for you? You jump in too. So, okay, first, kind of like wrapping up point here. I think there is a great deal of truth to this first do no harm ethos. I think also maybe having some, um, especially early in your career, but even as you go on having some, uh, self-compassion, like you are going to make some mistakes. You're gonna, you know, F up some companies. It's, it's gonna happen. I've done it. Everyone's done it. Even the best investors have done it. Doesn't mean you shouldn't beat yourself up about that. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't take the weight of responsibility super seriously. If you, if you choose to engage deeply as a company builder, that's going to happen. Try like hell not to have it happen. (laughs) Two is, you know, I always talk about, I talk about this with Jenny, my wife, a lot about like doing what makes sense. That's something, a perspective you can bring as a, you know, board member, VC outside sort of breadth perspective of like, Hey, I'm not sure what we're doing here makes sense or or doing this might make sense. And having an honest conversation around that is great. And I think the point I want to make here is like fostering relationships with the founders of companies and management teams where you can get to that point. Like rather than like they're trying to impress you or you're trying to impress them or whatever, like the faster you can just get to like, okay, nope, we're on the same page, we're on the same team. <laughs> Let's figure out what makes sense and do that. I'm going to steal your next one because I think it's, yeah, go for I've it. experienced it and it's so valuable. The shock absorber. So, and I've experienced it on both sides. So when you're running a company, many times a day, your ups and downs are spiking enormously. And especially when you're younger and less experienced, you don't sort of self-soothe or self-smooth those you just kind of like let them grab you. And so, you know, it's the best, this company's going to the moon when this customer sends a nice affirming email that they're interested in continuing or that that investor says, yeah, I'll take that second meeting. My team's really leaning in, which like uh, the whole episode to be done around how to interpret investor speak. You know, then it's the worst thing ever and the company's screwed when a key hire tells you they're leaving on the very same day that a customer says they had a budget freeze. You know, and these things just happen. Like this is the nature of startup. You're you're so nascent, and if you're doing your job right, you're moving so fast that there's lots of these things in play that are just coming at you all the time. 
And so by just being the steady hand and being non-reactive to the spikes when they happen and only paying attention to, hey, this thing's been happening like a lot over the last couple months, like that's when we talk about it. And we don't over-index on little things when they're happening and we don't blow things out of proportion. We being the royal we in this one, the we the investors understand that the founder likely is in a more temperamental mental state because they have a uh, more difficult, more trying job and they've put more on the line than the investors have of their personal livelihood, being able to say, hey, I'm coming at this from, you know, a different mental perspective than you are. And so I'm going to do the job of smoothing for you and not explicitly, but you know, everybody is always looking to the other shareholders in their company to to sort of validate or invalidate their thinking. And so if you're a board member and an inv- CEO comes to you and says, this is the worst thing ever, like by just not uh, repeating back, you're right, this is the worst thing ever. And saying like, <laughs> oh, well, you know, you don't even have to say anything positive, but just like by not sort of doubling down on the negativity, you can do a lot. The best way I've ever had this put to me is, you know, as a CEO, you're freaking out a lot of the time, yeah. especially an early stage CEO. Your job as an investor is not to freak out. Well put. <laughs> like, you're like the CEO is freaking out. So if you freak out, you're just going to amplify. It's going to be a freak out amplification feedback cycle. <laughs> <laughs> you need to break that feedback cycle. Yep. And then the the last two I have here are, are related that I've only just kind of like really come to be noodling on this uh, in my own life and career. But I think one of the best ways you can help be a company builder and this is also related to making investment decisions is understanding how and why people are going to succeed and fail at different things and i generally believe and i'm coming to believe that like the way that people are going to really succeed at something and really the only way that people are going to really succeed at something is if they just have like a deep internal desire to do it. It's like to the extent we've had any success with acquired, I think it's like you and I just love doing this, right? Like, (laughs) and you kind of can't fake this. This is like the, (laughs) we've talked about the Bill Gurley running down a dream, uh, talk that he gave on YouTube, which is so good. And, And I think this is what he's trying to say. Like if you love something and you, or you really, really want something, you're probably going to succeed at it commensurately. If you don't, you probably won't. And so I think is in your role as a uh, company building activities, as a, as a VC or an investor, you can help kind of calibrate and align that sort of stuff within a company that can be a really powerful role to play. Not one that you want to be like <laughs> parachuting in and changing roles <laughs> and like messing stuff up all the time, but like kind of understanding motivation of people and how that drives their behaviors, I think can just go a long, long way. Yep. All right. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Indeed. So hope everyone has enjoyed this uh, deep dive on company building. Next time, we are going to go in a very different direction and cover portfolio management within a firm, which sounds boring, but this includes stuff like follow on investment decisions. Should you bridge a company that's struggling? Should you not? How do you allocate a fund across a whole set of companies and opportunities. How many companies should be in a fund to be risk diversified enough? How should you think about which companies are the higher risk, higher reward bets versus the lower risk, lower reward? Should you blend those two things in a a single portfolio? Uh, Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Thank you all for being part of this community here 
in the LP program and acquired yourselves. Also, people have asked us recently about teams memberships for for the LP program for their teams, either venture funds or companies or work or uh, what have you. We definitely do that. If you're interested, email us or DM us on Slack and uh, we can get you and your team hooked up with that. Yep. There's sort of a call to action here around sharing with your friends. I don't really care if you share the LP show with your friends. We just sort of have this belief that if people listen to the main show and they like it and they're a practitioner and a company builder themselves, that they'll sort of find their way here. Sure, if you think this content's valuable, but if you if you like the main show and you like what we do here, pick your favorite episode, share it with a friend who uh, or a colleague who you think would really enjoy it. Share it on social media if you're open to that sort of thing. As David and I have, have recently rediscovered, we are a massively an organic growth engine, which is the sort of... Uh, gift of uh, inexpensive, but the curse of lack of repeatability. And so to the extent where you want to help more people discover Acquired, that is is how you can help. And, and thanks so much to those of you who have already shouted it from their local hilltops. <laughs> Indeed. Always, always appreciated. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being LPs. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.